Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can look at the Bible there in the chairs. It's page 984 in those chair Bibles. I'm really glad to be with you this morning, celebrating this Easter morning, as we do every single Sunday morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to who we are as Christians. The Lord is risen. He is alive. And his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his exaltation to the right hand of God the Father is a pillar of the Christian faith. In fact, you cannot be a Christian without it. So central, so essential to who we are and what we believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when rightly understood, serves as a motivation to, for us in the fight against sin. It propels us as the church forward in mission. It, it, it lifts up our downcast spirits. It gives us life and it gives us power and joy and an unwavering hope in the glorious and eternal future that we have with him forever. And that is secured. Friends, I hope that you understand that this is not an optional doctrine, but it is essential. And because it is essential, it changes absolutely everything. Or at least it should. Unfortunately, for many who profess the name of Christ, they see Jesus as little more than a moral example for how we ought to live and sacrificially love. For others... They might affirm that Jesus is the Savior who died as a substitute for sin so that we might, and I stress might, be forgiven by God. But functionally, we live as though he is dead. For many others, we may affirm that Jesus rose from the grave. We may affirm that he ascended to the right hand of his Father in heaven. But functionally, we live as though Jesus is a billion miles away from us, uninvolved and uninterested in our lives. And we go through life just feeling as though we are utterly alone. And so although we affirm that Jesus will come one day in glory and we hope that we will be with him right here and right now in everyday life, so what? It's just me on my own. And though we may profess that Jesus is our risen Lord, we go through life day after day after day after day living as though Jesus is either dead or distant. And do you think that that doesn't have an impact on the way that we live? If we're on our own, what does that mean? (laughs) I mean, I wonder... It, just even, even to begin with, practically, is that how you tend to view the resurrected Lord Jesus? I mean, functionally, in your daily life, is Jesus dead? Is he still in the grave? Is he just somewhere a, a billion miles away in the distance? Friends, if we're on our own, then it's no wonder that we feel so hopeless in the fight against sin. It's no wonder then that we set our minds on the things of this earth. It's no wonder if Jesus is dead or distant that we live as though this world is really all that there is. But friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead changes 
absolutely everything. It changes the goal. It changes the purpose. It changes the eternal outcome of the entire cosmos. And it's not just out there either. When we truly have faith in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, it changes every aspect of our lives, past, present, and future. We are not the same. This is a transformation of life in terms of your position before God. It is a transformation of the very purpose of your life and what it means that that we live for him. It strengthens us and it emboldens us with a present and active power working in our lives so that we might live for Christ until at last one day when we finally see him again in our future glory. Changes everything about us. When we truly come to understand our union with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, it changes everything. And that's what Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4 is all about. Because your life is hidden in the resurrected Christ, earnestly seek your future glory with him. Because your life, if you are in Christ, is hidden in the resurrected Christ, earnestly seek your future glory with him. So I pray that we would earnestly seek that together as we turn our attention now to the text, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him also in glory. Friends, being united to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ completely reorients the focus of our lives. It is not a part of our life that we just tack on. It becomes the whole. Being united with Christ is not something you do to just kind of add to a a, a mostly complete life, a mostly full life that we just want to add that little extra bit to polish it off. No, it becomes ultimate. Being united with Christ by faith means that your position before God has changed. And this change is past, present, and future. And so if we're going to understand how the resurrection of Christ changes our lives, we need to understand these past, present, and future realities. So that's what we're we're going to go from here. And so first, this passage reminds us of our past union with Christ. Oh, friends, this, let me just say that this is so, so essential, so freeing in so many ways, but yet so often misunderstood. You see, More often than not, one of the biggest mistakes that we make in the Christian life is we focus on what we do. That becomes just the the sole ambition of our lives. And we try to make the Christian life about us and about our efforts to gain the attention of God or other people. 
And rather than focusing on who Christ is and what he has done perfectly on our behalf, we spend our lives anxiously striving to make a name for ourselves, a name before God and a name before other people. We want other people to see us in the way that we want to be seen. And so we present ourselves in a particular way. Or what's even worse is we deceive ourselves into thinking we are a certain way. And so we're just kind of trying to get other people to believe the same lie about us. I'm good. I'm moral. I'm righteous. I'm religious. Look at the kind of person I am. And what's even worse than that is we go one step further because not only do we want them to see us that way and we spend our lives trying to get them to see us that way, we also want their approval. We want their recognition. We want them to reward us for the good that we have done for them, whether that be God or Other people, believers or those who do not follow Christ. We do this even in our initial entrance into the Christian faith. More often than not, if you ask a Christian, how do you know that you're truly a Christian? How do you know that you're truly a believer? You'll, You'll hear statements like, well, I asked Jesus into my heart. Or I prayed a sinner's prayer. Or I decided for Jesus or I was baptized. And what we do is we point back to something that we did in the past and we say, look, I know that I'm a Christian because way back when I did that. And we just go through life doing that same thing. But the book of Colossians, as well as in Paul's other letters, Paul says something very, very different. He doesn't point to something that we've done in our past and say, that's how you know. What he does is he points to our past union with Christ. Look there in verse one. It states, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Now, let me ask you this. Did you cause yourself to be raised with Christ? Did you do that? No. In verse three, It says, you have died with Christ. The reason why you're to set your mind on the things that are above is because you have died with Christ. And not only have you died with Christ, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This is far more than a decision or a prayer or acts of obedience. He is speaking of our union with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a union that began, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, when God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. This is a union that is established upon Christ, not upon me, upon Christ, upon his perfect obedience, upon his perfect life, upon his sacrificial death for sins, upon his life-giving resurrection from the dead, and his glorious ascension into the right hand of the Father in heaven. This is a union that came to fruition just as we read a few minutes ago when God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is a union that will continue on as we dwell with Christ from the point of our conversion throughout all eternity. What does that have to say about us and what we do? See, Paul wants us to truly understand who Jesus is 
He wants us to understand the immeasurable blessing that comes from our union with Christ. And to really understand what he's saying here in in Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4, we need to take a few minutes and and actually turn the pages back. So flip back one page, Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. In speaking of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. That includes you and me. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. They are sustained because he's doing it. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's resurrection. That in everything, in absolutely everything, he might be preeminent. Fancy word that means that he might be First, that he might be supreme. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He wants us to understand the supremacy of Christ over all things. Everything is about him. And in everything, he is to be first. Jesus is Lord over all. He is supreme. He is the creator and sovereign ruler of all there is. He is the one who sustains all there is. He is preeminent. And so what that means is death did not, nor could it not, overcome him because he is preeminent over all things, right? If death beats Jesus, then death is preeminent. You get that, right? But death cannot do that because Jesus is preeminent. He is over all things, over all creation, over all rulers and authorities, over death, and over the lives of you and me. And so Paul wrote this letter and he prayed this prayer so that we would come to understand just the glory of of what we've been given, of what it means that Jesus is preeminent for us. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, here's his prayer that precedes what he just said. He says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. That's God's glorious might. How are you strengthened? Because of God's might. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, get this, who has qualified you? How are you qualified before the face of God? God's done it in order to share in the inheritance and the saints of light. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and God has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. God is the one who qualified. God is the one who delivered. God is the one who has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And if he is ruling over all, then what then can separate us from that love? Absolutely nothing. 
But Paul keeps going. Not only is God the one who qualified us through the death of his son and delivered us from the darkness of sin and condemnation, transferring us into the kingdom of his beloved son, but he also adds in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, that when we respond to this prior work of God by repentance and faith, and when we obey the command of Christ to be baptized, it says that we were buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, having nailed it to the cross. Do you see then why Paul says that we have died with Christ? That old self, that person who you were before God did this work in your heart, that person is dead. You've been killed. You've been nailed to the cross. This passage does not describe baptism as something you do to take some sort of bath or shower as some ritual ceremony of washing your sins away. It describes baptism as a watery grave, as a tomb in which a believer is buried with Christ only to rise to new life in him. And so for Paul, baptism represents the end of an old life and the beginning of a new life. And all of this is the result of the powerful working of God who buried us with Christ, who raised us with Christ, and who has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. You see, it's not about who we are or about what we've done or what we do, but about who he is and what he has done for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, whom we have been united to. Friends, when when God saves you by his grace, your life is completely changed. I want you to understand something. The Christian faith is more than, it's more than understanding that Jesus is the son of God who completely lived a perfect life and then gave up that life by dying on a cross for sin. The Christian faith is more than affirming that you are a sinner who has rebelled against God, who has rejected God and tried to live on your own as if this is my world and I'm God. The Christian faith is more than realizing that you deserve the eternal condemnation of a holy God and that you are looking to Jesus' resurrection from the dead as the hope that God will not hold your sin against you. Now, it's all of those things, but it's a whole lot more. When you are saved by grace through faith, you are brought past tense into union with Christ. And you are not the same. Think about a marriage union. In a marriage union, his name becomes your name. His past becomes your past. His family becomes your family. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. His ambitions, his goals, his purposes, they become yours. And in a very real and yet mysterious way, when you died with Jesus in his death, and when he was raised from the dead, so were you. 
It's an amazing gift. And as a result of God's saving work by faith, you are a new creation, having been given new life in Christ. You're still living, still interacting here and now like you always have been, but always in union with your true husband. Always with him, even when he's not seemingly present. Life, this life, is not all there is. When God saved you, your life in Christ began And that is now the life that you live for. You get that in marriage, right? You understand that, that your life is joined together. Now you're not the same. You don't have the same pursuits. You don't have the same goals as before. It's all been transformed because this is your life. So it is with your union with Christ. Not only are you positionally in Christ, but you are now with Christ. Christ. I love that Paul says with Christ here. You are living in continual, personal, intimate relationship with him. So you foster that relationship. You live for that relationship. You love and you serve and you seek to grow that just as you do in your marriage. Now you've probably picked up on this by now, but it is worth repeating Because again, so often we fail to grasp it, but these verbs are in the past tense. It says, you have died with him. You have been raised with him. It's all past tense. Those who by faith are united with Christ have died. They've died to this world. They've died to sin. They've died to themselves and their self-centered earthly pursuit of satisfaction in the things of this world. They don't live for those things anymore. But not only have they died with him, but they've also been raised with him. Raised to new life. They've been born again. A life with, filled with new ambitions and new longings and new goals and new desires and new affections. Christ has become their life. Not simply a part of it. Along with job and marriage and family and hobbies and everything else on the earth that you can think of. No, your life in Christ becomes the whole that everything else is conformed to. Our union with Christ comes first. As we mistake this so often in the Christian faith. But Paul not only speaks of our past union with Christ in terms of participating in Jesus' death and resurrection, he also makes the most amazing statement in verse 3, one that you could just meditate on for days. He says that not only have you died, but that your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Friends, this is in the perfect tense. What the perfect tense means is that this is something that happened in the past, has been completed so perfectly that it has ongoing and continual results. What he is saying here is, oh, Christian, you need to understand this, that your life is perfectly hidden with Christ in God. Perfectly, nothing can separate it. Nothing can remove it. Your life is secure and there is nothing that can change that. 
And though your life in Christ, it may be concealed to the world, and at times because we are, we are thoughtless and foolish, we, it's concealed even to us, the reality is it is 100% secure in the eyes of God. Your life with Christ has been stored away safely, and there is nothing that can touch it. And although the world can't see it, your life, your true identity is forever secure. I don't know if you've ever left home without your driver's license and then got pulled over. Shame on you for doing that. Uh, You deserve to get pulled over. I'm kidding. Uh, When the officer comes to the window and he asks you for your driver's license and registration, you say to him, what's at home? Now, at that point in time, that officer has no idea who you are. Your true identity is hidden from that officer. But you know, you know who you are. You know that your, your identity, your true identification, who you really are is safe and secure at home. Right? That doesn't change because you don't have your ID on you. And so it is with your life in Christ. When God saved you by his grace through faith, he secured your life with Christ in God. And at that point, your eternal, your spiritual, your heavenly life began. And God himself is the one who will continue to guard it safely until it is fully and finally yours at the return of Christ. It's not at risk. It's not based upon your performance and who you are or who you try to present yourself to be. It is all about what he's done for you in Jesus. But even more than that, Even more than that, our life is forever hidden in Christ, with Christ, from the wrath of God. I remember as a kid, one winter, I think I was about 12 years old. It was was around Christmas time, and we had Christmas at my grandpa's house, and my grandpa's apartment complex. He was the manager of of the uh, apartments for the Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine. We loved everything going there all the time because there's tons of stuff to do. You know, hallways to run down, basements to hide in. It was fantastic. But anyway, we're there for Christmas. There was snow on the ground. So we all went outside, had this huge snowball fight, right? And so I'm throwing, I'm just winging them at my cousins. And one time I reared back and I threw the snowball. I missed my cousin. I hit a window and I completely cracked this window, top to bottom, side to side, just this huge spider web. And I was terrified. I was terrified because I knew my parents would be angry with me and that I would disappoint my grandpa. So what I decided to do is I decided just to hide out. I decided to lay low, just stay outside until it was time to go home. And that's what I did. Well, a few days went on and I I was trying to hide from my grandpa because I was ashamed. I started, I got this idea, okay, you know what? I've got this, got a few more weeks of spring break or this winter break, maybe Maybe I can earn money. I'll just earn enough money, and what I'll do is I'll come back to my grandpa, and I'll say, look, I I was the one that broke the window, but here's the money to pay for it. So I started scrambling to find any job that I possibly could to be able to pay for this window that I had broken and hadn't told anybody about, right? And so I'm scrambling. I'm asking my parents. I'm trying to do whatever I can. Well, my mom gets this bright idea. It's like, well, your grandpa has managed this apartment complex. He's got all these students gone. He's got to get them ready for the next semester. Why don't you go work for him? And I thought, that's great. I can earn this money. I can pay him right back. Wasn't really thinking about the fact that that would put me in contact with that window and my grandpa. But nevertheless, I thought, okay, 
I'm going to do it. So the next day I went and I started working for my grandpa, just helping him to clean and paint and fix things that need to be fixed. And of course, wouldn't you know it, one of the very first apartments we needed to go to was the apartment with the broken window. And so I'm just like, okay, I'm going to, I'm trying to find every excuse I can. Well, maybe I should just sweep the halls, Grandpa, or, or maybe I should go over here and do this. And I'm trying to do anything I could not to be in that apartment with my grandpa. And you know what he said to me? No, Chet, I want you with me. <laughs> well, I knew at that point I was in trouble. And as he opened the door, we began to walk inside. I expected to come face to face with this broken window. And much to my surprise, it's a brand new glass. Well, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. He said to me, you know, Chet, a couple of days ago, that window was broken. Do you know anything about that? Of course, being the good kid that I was, I immediately lied. No. But I couldn't stop staring at the window. He's like, a few, few minutes later, he said, are you sure? And I could barely get out a whisper. I did it. And he said, Chad, I didn't have you come work for me so you could pay me back for the window. I've already fixed it. It's done. I just don't want you to hide from me. I want to be with you. He didn't ask me to pay back that window. In fact, he did even more than that. He went to my parents and he told my parents that I broke the window. <laughs> I forgot to add this. There's something else that he said. I knew you broke the window. I heard the glass break. And your cousins told me before you ever left that day. <laughs> but he went and he stood before my parents. He stood in between me and my parents. And he shielded me from their anger as he told them that I broke the window. Of course, my dad's like, oh, he's going to pay you back. And my grandpa said, no, he doesn't have to. And you know what else he did? At the end of the week, he paid me for the work that I'd done. That's what it's like. It's our union with Christ. That's what our life in him is about. It's not about who we are or about what we've done, or this, this foolish attempt that we think that we can fix things. He's already done it. It's finished. He's paid for the penalty for all of our sin, past, present, and future. His resurrection proves that he has done all that is necessary to restore everything that has been broken, and that God's wrath for sin has been satisfied. And even now, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ stands before God in heaven, and he pleads on our behalf. And so when we, as those in Christ, sin against God, you know what Jesus says? I have purchased that with my blood. There's nothing left to pay. There is no wrath of God, of God against me. I am secure in him completely and forever. Friends, Christ is not dead or distant. 
He is right there, right now. And our life is hidden right now with Christ in God. And so what that means for us is there is no greater sense of security. There is no better self than you could ever pursue than what has already been given to us freely through our union with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. That is our past union. And it is that past union that enables us to sing, in Christ alone, our hope is found. He is our light, he is our life, he is our strength, he is our song. So that's the benefit of that past but unending union that we have with Christ. And it's because that is true and because it is ongoing, second, that it changes our present ambition to be for Christ. You see, if we don't truly understand who we are in Christ, we will not understand how we are to then live. We'll get it wrong. Either we will strive to create some sort of religious identity that conforms to my beliefs, my patterns of thinking. I'm supreme. I present myself in this certain way. I do all of these things religiously in order to present myself as good and holy and righteous. Or, or we will strive to, find, to, to make our life about something else. Living, laboring to find identity in things that are on earth. Or what happens more often than not is we do a combination of both. But our past union with Christ, given by the powerful working of God, focuses our present ambition. Again, verse 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, and if you are truly in Christ, you have been. Seek the things that are above. And that is present tense, my friends. What he's saying there is continually seek the things that are above. Day after day, Moment after moment, choice after choice for the entirety of your lives. Seek the things that are above. Since we have this new life in Christ, we are called to live for our Lord Jesus Christ because our life is now hidden with him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us new life. And this is a life that is freed from the bondage of sin. This is a life that is freed from the futilities of this world, a life that is now free to obey God. Like We were never able to do that before, but now we can. And as a result, we have a new home with God in heaven, and we live out of that address right now. That's why we've been given this command to seek the things that are above. Now, we often think about this geographically. Right? The things that are above are where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And that's heaven. And we treat it as some, some geographical other, some physical realm, spiritual higher plane that is beyond us, that is distant from us. We think of ourselves like in Pilgrim's Progress. We, we understand seeking the things above as a destination, as, as a celestial city that we, Christian, are laboring and plodding toward. And there's truth in that. Because it hasn't fully been realized. There is a future orientation for sure. 
But really what Paul is doing here is he's speaking about present reality. He's speaking about today and every day. He's focused on the present reign of Christ. You see, when Jesus rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of his Father in heaven, and he is currently reigning over all things. And if you have been raised in him, that is your present reality. Jesus is the reigning Lord over all that there is. We are with him. So seek the things that are above where he is. Live for him. Strive towards that goal. Seek to obtain it. Long for it with all your heart. Desire to possess it. Actively pursue it. Since you are in Christ and he is now reigning in glory and you have been raised with him, seek to make sure that your pursuits, the desires of your heart, your ambitions, your affections, your purposes align with his. And he says, fight for this. Every aspect of your life is to is meant to reflect where you belong and the king to whom you belong, the one that you were united to. Christ is seated. And we miss the significance of this because we were not ancient Near Eastern Jews. But not only does Christ being seated at the right hand of God reveal to us that Jesus is reigning as Lord, reigning right now over all that it is, but it also reveals to us that his atoning work is completed. It's done. And he sat down. We see this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. You see, in the Jewish sacrificial system, the priests were constantly offering sacrifices all day, every day. You had yearly sacrifices. You had seasonal sacrifices that corresponded with all of the festivals they celebrated. You had weekly sacrifices. There were daily sacrifices, but not just daily sacrifices. There were morning and evening sacrifices. And then there were personal sacrifices for sins that people had committed. And so what that meant was that all day, every day, priests stood. They stood to pray, they stood to slaughter, and they stood to burn sacrifices for the sins of Israel. Countless animals were offered as substitutes to satisfy the wrath of God so that this holy God would not condemn his people, but be able to live with his people. One after another, after another, after another, after another, day after after day and year after year and decade after decade for centuries this went on and the blood would flow in the big time festivals blood would flow down the streets and the smoke would billow up to the heavens and the stench of burning flesh would fill your nostrils and smite the air within the entire city you couldn't get away from it and it went on like that for centuries until one single day in which the perfect and holy Lamb of God, the great high priest, ascended the hill of Calgary and in that one event sacrificed himself as a one-time offering and all of it came to nothing. It says there in verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat 
down at the right hand of God. His atoning work is forever complete. Who you are and what you have done and what you're currently struggling with, it all doesn't matter because Christ has covered it all. That smoke is no longer billowing. That blood is no longer flowing. That stench is no longer filling the air because Christ has perfectly paid for our sins and is now seated at the right hand of God. And so all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your disgrace, all of your hurts and pains and failures, all of the sins that were so grievously committed against you that weigh you down, all of the futility of trying to live your identity and find your identity in all of the world's stuff, all of it has been done with. It's been taken care of. It's been nailed to the cross. And friends, Christ's tomb is empty and you have been raised with him. And so Paul is telling us, stop living like a dead man. You are alive. That's not who you are. So why on earth would you return to it? You are raised. You are seated with him. So seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul then says in verse 2, in a similar way, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And where that first command speaks of the desires of our hearts and the redirection of our affections for the purposes of Christ, the second command speaks continually of setting our minds or actively resolving our wills and our thoughts towards Christ rather than the things that are on earth. To actively and willfully and repeatedly commit yourself to him. This means making your intentions, setting your intentions upon Christ and to espouse his cause rather than your own. And set your mind on the things that are above is to set your mind on the one who is above. on Christ rather than the things that are on earth. Well, what does he mean when he says the things that are on earth? Friends, he means anything that is less than Christ. And especially those things that are actively opposed to Christ. This is not that hard. It's when we set our minds on the things of this earth, what we're doing is we're living and thinking and acting as if this life here and now is all that there is. It's thinking and striving towards things as if they're somehow separate from Christ. Well, I can have Christ over here as this part of my life, but the bulk of my life is right over here and that's, that's for me. As one commentator wrote, a man's thinking and striving cannot be seen in isolation from the overall direction of his life. What do you strive for? What do you think about? Where is your life headed? What is it that you are living for? Because if your thoughts, your ambitions, your intentions are only on the things of this earth, then at best that is all you'll get. You'll be loved by the world, and you will love the world more than Christ. But friends, this world is not all that there is. Christ has secured your life in him 
so that you might live that life and really be able to live that life for him. Paul understands that, uh, or Paul wants us to understand that our present position with Christ changes the way that we live daily. He reminds us, all who have died and been raised with Christ, that right now you are with Christ. Right now, Christ is seated at the right hand of God, reigning as king in heaven, and you are with him. Right now, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right now, Christ is your life. I just wonder, if we did an honest assessment of ourselves this morning, how could we say that? How many of us could, could raise our hands and say, you know what, my life is Christ. Christ is my life. Or would we have to say that of other things? Our job, family, education, status, achievements, hobbies. Even more than that, can we say that as a church? You know, an interesting point about verses three and four, when Paul says your life the possessive pronoun, your, is plural. He's writing to the church at Colossae as a whole, as a collective, as an assembly of people. He's not speaking to individuals or singulars and saying you, you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. He's saying you all, you together. But the word life there in verses 3 and 4 is singular. It's your life together. The one life that belongs to all of us together. It's one life. That collective life is hidden with Christ in God. And that life is Christ. Our life together, Redeemer Church, is Christ. Is that what we are truly living for? Is that what we are pursuing together? Is that what we are encouraging one another to? And are you a part of that this morning? I mean, the reality is this is Christ's ambition for you. And what's keeping you from letting that be your ambition? Now, what Paul is saying here, it's like what any coach does when he grabs the helmet of a player and gets right up in his face. Focus. Seek Christ. Right? Set your mind and your heart and your will upon him. Christ is your life focus. Don't get distracted by all of these other things. Stay focused upon him. It says in verse 5 that we are to put to death those earthly things among us. We're to kill them. And he tells us what some of them are. You have been freed from that which leads to death and condemnation. And so then why would you return to it? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly within you. And instead, verse 12, he says, look, you, get this, are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And because that is true of you, put on Christ. Let your mind and your heart be captivated. These heavenly realities that he speaks of, of who you are in Christ, they're greater and they are more sure than your present circumstances and trials and temptations and longings and desires. 
Put those things to death and put on Christ. He is your life. Therefore, seek him. Set your mind upon him. May your affections and your desires and your thoughts and your pursuits ever be aligned with his. Do not seek your own ambitions, but rather strive together as one to make Christ's ambition be ever yours. Let who you are in Christ capture you and empower you every day for this fight of faith. And let's do that together. Friends, this fight is not futile. God has brought us together as a church. This fight is not futile because of who we are in Christ. This fight is not pointless because we have the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. This fight is not pointless because the power of God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work immeasurably towards everyone who believes. But you have got to believe that. You've got to be captured by that. You've got to take a hold of who you are. Perhaps you're familiar with the movie Cinderella Man. It's based upon a true story of a man named James Braddock, who was a fighter during the Great Depression. And when he was a young man, he was an average fighter. He fought, didn't really get very far. Eventually, he washed up, took a job on the docks, started a family. But when the Great Depression hit... He lost his job. And so, being far beyond his prime, he chose to return to the ring in hopes to provide for his family. But because he had a new motivation, because he had this this love for his family, he was desperate. There's a sense of desperation and longing and motivation that he never had before. And so he found himself quickly climbing the ranks until finally... He had a shot for the title. And the one thing that was standing between him and the championship was a beast of a man named Max Bear. And Max Bear had already killed two men in the ring. This was one scary guy. And James Braddock was concerned. His wife never liked the idea of him fighting. So she certainly didn't want to see him do it. So it got to the night of the fight, and he's there, he's in the locker room, and his wife comes in. She gets a chance to talk to him. And she says to him, you can't win without me behind you. Of course, he already knew that. She says, so you just remember who you are. You are the bulldog of Bergen and the pride of New Jersey. You are everybody's hope. And you are your kid's greatest hero. And you, James J. Braddock, are champion of my heart. So you get out there and you fight. Friends, knowing who you are, how much you are loved, what you've been given, there is power and there is motivation for the fight. And when we get that, when we truly let that capture us, there is power to change our present ambitions. When we can live differently because of who we are, and we are who we are because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we see that our past union with Christ sets the focus of our present ambition for Christ, third, upon our future glory in Christ. We've been united with the resurrected Christ who is right now reigning, 
And right now, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right now, we are to set our minds and our hearts wholly upon him. Why? Well, verse 4 tells us, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Friends, there is still so much more yet to come. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised his disciples on many occasions that he would return again in glory. He told them that he has gone to prepare a place for them so that they too might share in his glory. And though it's hard to imagine what it's going to be like. In fact, scripture itself has difficulty describing the glories that await us. It does point us to some glorious truths. For example, 1 John Chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are now God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from that citizenship in heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We have this glorious future awaiting us. A day in which we will be with the resurrected and returning Lord Jesus Christ forever. And it will be glorious. We will share in that glory. When he appears, we will then appear. And guess what? It's passive. You don't cause yourself to appear. You are made to appear. This again is the work of God. It is done for us. That's the future promise that's awaiting every believer who has been united with Christ. Our true identity, which is currently hidden, even in some sense to us, will be revealed in all the splendor, in all the wonder, in all the marvelous glory of heaven. So marvelous will this future glory be that C.S. Lewis in his book, Weight of Glory, said that if we saw even the dullest and most uninteresting person that you could possibly imagine here in this life, if you saw that person in his future glory, you would be strongly tempted to worship him. We can scarcely imagine the future weight of glory that is awaiting us all. And we know that it is sure We know that it is coming not because of what I do or what you do, but because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, do you see the hope that is in the resurrection? The great promise of the gospel the great promise that comes out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that tomorrow can be different. In fact, tomorrow is different and tomorrow will be different because when he appears, we will appear also with him in glory. Let that be your motivation. Let that be your hope. 
Let that be your one ambition and may the joy of the Lord be your strength. That is our glorious future promise. And because that is our glorious future promise, it, it changes the way we think about our lives. I mean, it, it changes everything. It changes the way we think about our families and our jobs, our relationships, our sense of accomplishments. I mean, just take, the exam- for example, marriage, right? We're given this picture of marriage in Scripture. We understand marriage to, to be a mirror that is meant to reflect Christ's love for his, cho- for his church. And it points to a future marriage, Revelation chapter 19, when Christ is forever united to his bride, the church, in pure and spotless and radiant glory. All of it. Every aspect of your life, every part of who you are is meant for him, for his glory and for your joy in him. If you find yourself joyless in the pursuits of your life, you need to ask yourself the question, am I pursuing joy in the Lord? Am I living this for the Lord or am I trying to find my identity in it and it's killing me? Because it's all meant to come back to him. And if, as you make whatever that is in your life, submit, subjected to Christ, you will find joy in it. You will. Because you're doing it for the Lord, who is your glory. So set your minds on these past, present, and future realities. Set your minds on the fact that Christ is risen and you have been raised with him. Grow in your longing and your hunger and your desire to know Christ and to see him as he is. And I just, within the last week, I watched that movie, The Son of God. And though there are things about it I don't like, one of the things that I love the most is, is when John sees Jesus and Jesus holds out his hand to him and you can see the light piercing through his hand. And I found myself saying, I want that. I want that. I want to see that. It was motivating. Spend your life together, our lives together, striving toward our one ambition, which is the upward call of Christ. Because your life is hidden, the resurrected Christ, earnestly seek your future glory with him. Friends, my prayer for you and for me, my charge for you and for me is this, may your past union with Christ focus your present ambition upon your future glory. Let's pray.